I'm Damien Barr, and you're listening to Damien Barr's Literary Salon, where I get to meet the world's most fantastic writers, talk to them about what they're writing, and find out a wee bit more about who they really are. In this episode, recorded at London Savoy Hotel, I'm interviewing Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, about the rhetoric of politics. Strong and stable, weak and wobbly, coalition of chaos. What do these words really mean, if anything? And how are they used for and against us? Thank you, Damien. There's um, one important rhetorical technique is what we call expectation management. And you've just screwed that for me. Um, So thank you. Um, Anyway, I should say... Um, apologies, I was about three quarters of the way through writing a book about rhetoric and public speaking when it occurred to me I was going to be expected to speak about it in public and I did a sort of, oh shit. Because um, I, as I think of myself, I'm much more of a dance critic than a ballerina. So apologies if my delivery is not as fluent as it should be. Um, I don't have Damien's gift of the gab, but I'm very good at sitting in glass houses throwing stones. Um, what rhetorical device is that? Just checking. Ah, I've forgotten. (laughs) It all comes so naturally now. Um, So what I wanted to do was start... I mean, I always, when I I talk about this book um, or about my pet nerdy subject, I like to start by paying tribute to the classical origins of rhetoric with a quote from Homer. So if you can picture the scene, Marge and the kids are walking down the street... (laughs) ..and Marge is singing. She's saying, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? (laughs) And Homer says, seven. And Lisa interjects, Dad, it's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Oh, okay, six. (laughs) So Lisa looks very, very, says, Dad, do you even know what rhetorical means? And Homer goes, do I know what rhetorical means? (laughs) (laughs) So... It's great, because I always know that if the audience laughs at that joke, we're halfway there. And if they look completely blank, like kind of the proverbial dog that's been shown a card trick, I go, you need my book. Um, Anyway, so what does rhetorical mean? And part of why I wrote this book and what I'm interested in kind of, you know, starting a big conversation about is that rhetorical as a phrase, rhetoric as a kind of term, in our age is normally... A boo word. It's a word for everything that's kind of windy and insincere and over the top, and it's always counterposed to action. You know, it's always sort of, let's put aside the rhetoric and get down to the action. But this idea that rhetoric is a bad thing is itself a whole rhetorical device of its own. And you need only go back to Julius Caesar, um, that famous funeral speech in which Mark Antony says, Charlie says, I am no orator, as Brutus is, but as you know me all, a plain, blunt man. Now, this is what, in the technical study of rhetoric, we call bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Antony is three times the orator Brutus is. He absolutely wipes Brutus out. But, of course, he's given himself an advantage from the off, because he's saying, what I'm doing is speaking from the heart. What he's doing is this contrived, artificial you know, dangerously persuasive rhetoric. 
And what rhetoric does mean is just the attempt for one person to persuade another person or a group of people in words, which is to say almost every use of language you'll find. Human beings don't exchange information in a kind of neutral, value neutral way like you know, computers simply piping ones and zeros back and forth. We've always, we're always working an angle. And from the very you know, youngest child, you know, the, we do it naturally, but we know that it can be improved by art, that you can learn how to do it. And when people sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes say, you know, as the Monty Python thing, you know, what of Romans, you know, what has rhetoric ever done for us? And my modest answer is it's given us the whole of Western civilization. Because you walk downtown in any big Western capital, the two most important, biggest, most grandiose buildings are invariably Parliament and the law courts, which are both temples to the idea that you should order civic society by having an argument rather than by having a fight. They're temples to argument. And what's happened, which I regret, is that rhetoric, which is a body of knowledge about how this stuff works and has been since 400 years before the birth of Christ, has sort of vanished. It trickled away in the early 20th century. And people stopped talking about it. Its territory got, I mean, it was full of Latin and Greek words, so you can see why people went off it. But its territory was colonized by things like linguistics and um, you know, social psychology and poetics and various things. But, but for most of human civilization, rhetoric has been the best description we've had of how language works not only on a kind of figural level in terms of how it, you know, how individual sentences can balance and twist and sound beautiful and repeat themselves and be put together, but how human persuasion works on other human beings. And are losing it as a vocabulary to talk about this stuff, because it hasn't become less true, um, has coincided almost exactly with there being more rhetoric about us than ever before in human history. Because the ancient Greeks, you know, the, the persuasive situation was pretty much what we've got now, except without art amplification. I'd be dressed in a toga or one of those funny Greek skirty things. And uh, there would be one audience who would be the people within earshot. And I wouldn't have a voice. I wouldn't be able to stand up and speak if I was a woman or a metic or a slave or a foreigner or no coward. You know, I'd be completely banned. Um, and that was as far as the audience went. You know, you would in the agora and that was it. Since then, many, many people have got the chance to speak in public. And what's more with the internet, well, you know, first the printing press and then the internet, and finally, um, you know, all the industries of 20th century society, as democracy has expanded, so has rhetoric expanded, and it's coextensive. So, you know, any fool, sometimes we may regret, with an internet connection or a computer, can, or even a mobile phone, is able to put their words out into the world. And the ancient Greeks didn't have things like the advertising industry, the branding industry. They didn't have white-collar work in the way we understand it now, where you're using persuasive language to manage up and manage down. So we're basically living through this rhetorical explosion. And yet, as I say, we've lost the vocabulary to speak about it. So what I wanted to do was very briefly, before I start to talk to Damien, say, you know, what Aristotle said and why he was right. But that's fighting talk. Right that's there. fighting talk. <laughs> right? I maintain he was still right. Um, and his first insight was that rhetoric was what he called a technare, 
And that's the root of the word technical and technique. And what he argued was that this was something that we can do naturally, that we do do naturally. You know, anyone who's got a kid who's passing the low shelf of sweets towards the supermarket checkout knows that children can be persuasive without any formal training. <laughs> um, but he said you can improve it by formal training. You can understand what's going on. And his foundational insight, which is the basic prism through which I think we can see and can continue to see how political and all other forms of persuasion now work, is that there are three and only three ways in which people are persuaded. And this triad is ethos, pathos, and logos. And ethos, which is basically much more important than the other two, is the connection a speaker makes with his or her audience. And that connection is about do you trust them? Do you believe they know what they're talking about? Do they feel like one of you? Are they running a hidden agenda? It's, all, it, it's absolutely about that connection of trust. And a lot of that's forged at the level of what we call decorum, of do they speak the same language as you? Because so much of rhetoric is identity speech. It's about who's us, who's them, who's accepted axioms of moral wisdom or you know, whatever else it is. Are you, are you going to hove to? And so the most common ethos appeals, you know, you see it every time in politics, is I'm one of you. I mean, there are special sorts of ethos appeal. For example, Natalie Haynes down there, um, you know, I wouldn't say, like, we, we shouldn't listen to Natalie because she may know more about Greek than us. You know, on the subject of ancient Greek, she will be correcting my pronunciation from down there and loudly. <laughs> um, that's a sort of expertise. You know, if, if there's a sort of outbreak of the Zika virus in that corner of the room, if someone runs in wearing a white coat and a stethoscope and a biological spacesuit, we'll tend to defer to them in the treatment of the patient rather than the guy who was like, I had Zika once. <laughs> but the most common... <laughs> that was like Barney from The Simpsons. Yeah, that's Barney from The Simpsons. You've had the yeah. entire show. Exactly. Um, so the most common one is the, I, you know, I'm one of you which is always absurd and always very funny because politicians, you know, you see the moment there's the run up to an election, you know, there's that thing, what's the price of a pint of milk? Because the idea that might know lots and lots about the economy but nothing about the price of a pint of milk is somehow intuitively barbarous to us. We want to know that they're just like us. The idea that they'd say, calm down, you worry about pints of milk, I'll worry about post-neo-endogenous growth theory. <laughs> that was where Gordon Brown fell yes. down. <laughs> And likewise, you know, in America, it's even better, they run up to elections and you suddenly get all the candidates will start putting on baseball caps and, you know, throwing out the first pitch and, how, you know, being photographed awkwardly eating hot dogs. Or if they're Republicans, they'll be dressed in full camos, mounting an A40, AK-47 and trying to shoot <laughs> a fucking moose. Um, so there'll be that kind of idea, you know, I'm one of you, I'm just like a regular guy. Which is, of course, bollocks. American presidential candidates you don't get within 100 miles of the White House by being anything like a regular person. You have to be extremely rich. Um, you have to be extremely ambitious, extremely well-supported. Um, I used to say you have to be extremely clever. Um, <laughs> you're in many ways unlike your bog-standard Main Street guy. So ethos is number one, and if you don't pass that test, if people don't trust you, if they don't feel you're one of them, if they don't feel your instinct with the identity of the tribe, you're sunk. Then there's pathos, which is the, any attempt to sway the audience's emotions. Do you make them laugh? Do you make, I mean, it's not just pathos, because we often say pathos you know, is a sad bit in a film. Pathos can be 
sadness, but it can be anger, it can be patriotism, it can be embarrassment, it can be shame, it can be pity, any emotional appeal whatsoever. And then limping in at number three is logos, which is your actual basic argument. And logos gets you nowhere. As we all know, when we've seen, you know, we've had enough of experts, you know, you can show any number of statistics and charts and projections by experts, but one shout of, take back control, and it all just vanishes beautifully away. Oh, at least it does now, in this moment. It does in this particular moment, and we, you know, we'll go on to talk about that. Um, but those are the sort of basic, basic tenets that Aristotle came up with. And there is much more, um, but I think what I should just briefly do, if I can crave your indulgence, about two minutes more, and then I'll stop lecturing and spaffing on. But so you've got those three, and those are a sort of vital analytical tool for understanding how any given piece of persuasion works, because they overlap. And you know, as I say, ethos and pathos tend to win out. But then there's also what was subsequently developed in the classical, well, post in the Roman era by Quintilian and Cicero, was the idea of what we call five canons of oratory. And these were invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. And the idea of this is that they're a sort of essay plan, a kind of five-stop shop that takes you from your idea to a finish to the audience's ears. Invention is where you come up with your arguments. And the, the root of that is invenio, nothing means to come upon. Because they thought you didn't create arguments from scratch. They're out there in the world. They're available. There are many different arguments to support any given point, And you find the one that will, back to ethos, resonate with your audience. Then there's arrangement. You have to put them in the right order. You decide. You know, the, 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 that's your essay structure. You, know, you, you start out with a strong ethos appeal. You say, this is who I am. This is why you need to listen to me. Then you, you know, rebut your opponent's arguments, present your own or vice versa as you choose. You might digress a bit. Then you wrap it all up with a pathos-filled, rousing peroration at the end. Style is all the stuff that makes, and this is really important because it's not just decorative. It's the stuff that makes speech memorable, that shapes how its rhythms go, how it builds to a, to a you know, rousing close or vanishes with a poignant dying fall. And that's where you put your sound bites in. That's where you put your, your witty little bits in. Then memory, much less important in our generation of PowerPoint and the rest of it. But we all know when somebody's just dully reading a kind of best man speech off a sheet of paper with their hands trembling, you feel you're being read to, not addressed. So having somehow internalized your speech has a much more effective, you know, effective communication with an audience. That's what allows you to digress, to improvise, to read an audience and speed up and slow down as appropriate. Um, in my case, speed up. <laughs> and finally, there's delivery, which is the bit where there's no point in having the most beautifully crafted speech if you can't deliver it without your kneecaps falling off. See Theresa May recently for details. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those are, those are the basic kind of building blocks. And I think, as I say, this is my elevator pitch, they have not stopped being true. What's changed slightly is the means of transmission, and we'll talk about that a bit more, but the fundamentals of rhetoric are the fundamentals of human nature. They're how you work on an audience, be it your mum at the Sweetie Till or the millions and millions of Americans who are going to vote in your election.
So you, you mentioned at the beginning the idea that we reject rhetoric a lot of the time as empty rhetoric or mere rhetoric or pure sophistry even at, yes. its, at its kind of pinnacle. Like and Obama was one of the ones who, politicians who was most criticised for that. But, you know, in, in America, people damned him, didn't they, for well, his, people, for his eloquence. People on his own side. Yeah. So, you know, he's just a person of words. Um, you know, he's, he's just a talker. But, you know, I note the people who were campaigning against him they didn't stop making speeches. They didn't stop campaigning an interpretive dance or <laughs> posting, you know, beautiful plasticine sculptures through each other's letterbox. They continued to make speeches and write, you know, party political leaflets and deliver broadcasts and run attack ads. They simply did it a bit more craply than he did. Yeah. But they also dressed themselves in this idea that they are plain-speaking, good, honest yes. people. So, therefore, that somehow they are, their words are coming from a place of, of truth. Well, there's rather... this idea that, I mean, I think what often we think of as rhetorical is what, and again, the ancients knew this, that there, is, there are different styles. There's the high style, which is the most obviously rhetorical, which is the one that's got all those curlicues that mm. uses anaphora and epistrophe and all these sort of, you know, tricolons that, that's very elaborate and overworked with what get called the figures, which are those twists and turns of language that rhetoric described before we had any other means of describing how language works. But there's the medium style and the plain style, and it's all about fitting it to the audience. So if you come in and you speak, you know, as, say, you know, Malvolio does mm. in Twelfth Night, mm. you know, everybody laughs at him because he's getting it wrong, or Pistol's Braggadocio in Henry IV. That, you know, Shakespeare was all across rhetoric because he would have been taught rhetoric. It was one third of an education in Shakespeare's time. Um, so getting the style wrong is absolutely, you know, that, that's a sign when you're, you're suddenly vulnerable mm -hmm. to the charge that you're being rhetorical. Yeah. But, you know, I, rhetoric, as far as I see it, is wall to wall. Um, you know, we, we only have words to argue. And the oldest trick in the book is to say that rhetoric is not to be trusted. I mean, it goes back to Plato, who basically didn't like the idea. You know, he was a sort of philosopher king kind of guy. He was a mathematician. You know, he was interested in the idea of formal logic, where everything goes A, therefore B, or you know, axiom A, axiom B, therefore conclusion C, um, which is what we call the syllogism. Um, Aristotle was much more like, it doesn't work like that down here. We have, you know, logic is fuzzier. You know, when you're arguing about the past, mm. you can never, you know, we, in the law courts, we argue about beyond reasonable doubt. When you're arguing about the future, of course, we don't know about what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And so, you know, Plato hated rhetoric because he thought it would give, you know, it went with democracy. It went with the idea that the mob has a voice and the mob can be scary. So you hope for, which is what Cicero hoped for, better orators. So is, is, is the problem, is the reason that rhetoric is, is so deeply suspect now or has fallen out of fashion in terms of how we teach it or talk about it, the, is it partly at least to do with the fact that people are trying to fit arguments in 140 characters or less? Is, is, is part of the problem the, the well, medium? Think, well, the medium's changed. And I think, you know, if you take that fundamental idea that it's a connection between speaker and audience, that's all about going to where your audience is and fitting mm -hmm. the audience, you have to factor in how your message is going to reach the audience. So if you aren't in a situation, which we, which we now aren't, where people are going to troll down to the Agora because they hadn't invented the Xbox yet, and they hadn't invented Twitter and listened to somebody in a toga droning on for three hours, um, you know, and then maybe pass it on by word of mouth, 
you realize that actually the way that you know, people criticize soundbite culture, you, the, the way that your speech is going to be received and interpreted is through rolling news. You know, our attention spans have gone down. The way that things travel is in soundbites and memorable phrases. And so politicians are simply adapting to the medium. You know, the medium is the message. So the age of Twitter is one in which, you know, a high-flown speech doesn't travel as far as a tweet that ends with sad exclamation mark. <laughs> Bad exclamation Bad mark. Exclamation mark. Um, so your, your column in the FT has been, given a, has been given a, a great kind of burst of life by, by Trump um, and you, by, by, the, by the election. Um, and it's a good thing that Trump did. It's the good thing. Um, and when you post these columns on, F, on, on Facebook, um, you often write brilliant things, which I wish would make it into the article. So he, he posted the piece about Theresa May's interview in the Plymouth Herald, which you may or may not have seen, which some people said wouldn't have passed the um, Turing test, you know, about her, <laughs> about her being, a, being, a, being a computer. And, and Sam's, Sam's comment on this was, state of this. Very academic, and then and then on the the the, um, the the on Corbyn's buster form and that binfire of a Theresa May interview, I loved binfire as a rhetorical well, term. Yeah, but I what, didn't what, think it was very FT though. I could. But what? But you know, you, what, what are the different rhetorical devices that we might use in in speech versus say you know? A, well, a, I think a there debate. is. A, I mean, actually, funny enough, watching those Paxman interviews, it occurred to me. I mean, sort of more forcefully than it had before that there's a whole set of what we call the figures, which is these terms, you know, you've heard like probably tricolons when you group things in three, or anaphora when you keep repeating yourself at the beginning of successive sentences. Um, you know, the figures, there's hundreds and hundreds of them, and they cover almost everything that language can do. But that there are some figures that are well adapted to the conversational situation, such as um, aporia, which is when you go, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say next often, you know, feigning emotion, um, or anacoluthon, which is when you sort of break off or the sentence's gram grammar breaks down, which feel much more like the sort of, like you're thinking in the moment. And they're well-suited. These are sort of conversational, mm. sort of dialogic figures that work well, whereas anaphora, which is quite formal, which you'll tolerate in a formal speech because you'll think that, you know, they've written a speech. And it sounds rather good. You know, I'm going to be a president who does this. I'm going to be a president who does that. I'm going to be a president who does the third thing. If you're being interviewed, as Theresa May was at that, which was why I thought that interview worked so badly and showed her up so much as someone who's not very agile on her feet, was that, and I say this not in any sort of particular political way. No, I mean, I you know, fucking hate her, but um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeking to describe her politics, but her style of communication. Um, she kept falling back on anaphora. When yeah. Paxman asked her a question she didn't like, she'd say, well, the thing is about this, and the thing is that. And you got the sense, rather either that she was delivering pre-prepared boilerplate, which always looks bad in an interview, or that she was just playing for time. You know, you say, mm. well, I think the important thing is, well, I think the other important thing is, well, it, it sounds like you're structuring a speech, but actually you're sort of going, I'll say this over and over again in the hopes that I can think of something actually. And, is to that say. Also, is and that Corbyn also, was very relaxed in those interviews, which I, was was notable. I thought. But is that also what Corbyn's doing when he says, "Look, Brexit is happening." Yes, that look, which is apostrophe to an extent. Apostrophe is where you change the addressee. So very stagily, mm. in Diana's funeral, um, her brother Charles Spencer, 
in the funeral oration started to say, we will honor you, your blood family, and started talking to the dead Diana in the middle of this funeral speech, and everyone went completely mad about it. Um, but apostrophe, you know, oh gods, why do you mock at me thus? You know, I mean, it's kind of stagey technique, but, but you can use apostrophe, that sort of redirecting the audience to, rather than, to, you know, look, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you, Jeremy, or, yeah. well, I think the people out there, don't you think, Dave, who just asked me that last question, yeah. all that kind of pivoting and talking to the audience, those sorts of techniques work very well in a kind of dialogic way. So thinking not about politics, our personal politics, yeah. or indeed the policies, um, if it was just about rhetoric, who do you think would win the election? And I'm including in this not just Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, but Caroline Lucas, who I think yeah, speaks very well, speaks Paul well. Nuttall, who I think doesn't think, um, um, and, and various, you know, the various other leaders. I mean, is there well, somebody... I think fluctuated. You know, I mean, I think, actually, his set piece, Corbyn's set piece speeches, having been read about Theresa May on her feet, I think Corbyn's set piece speeches have been generally been very bad. I mean, he bumbles around like somebody looking for his glasses or, mm. you know. Um, I think that it's tricky. They're all pretty crap. Um, I mean, one, one of the things that I think is notable is that Corbyn, I think because he developed a sort of, oh, I've got nothing to lose here thing, mm -hmm. was very relaxed in that thing. And also because yes, he, he sort was. of stuck to his guns for a very long time. He was able to sort of laugh. And that's a very, very powerful ethos appeal, I think, because it says, I'm confident. You know, Theresa May looks nervous and fresh and she's got a voice high up in her throat mm. when she's doing anything spontaneous. Corbyn was much more relaxed. I mean, I don't think his answers necessarily were politically any more convincing, mm. but he gave the impression, he said, oh, come on, Jeremy, give me a chance, you yeah. know, which May didn't dare do. And he, you know, he was impressive in those interviews, but most of his set-piece speeches, I think, are not very good. I think that the Tories have had a problem, which isn't specific, it's about the prepared rhetoric, Mm. which is, strong and stable, God, strong they and bloody... Well, that was not a completely stupid thing to do, because strong and stable, they were thinking, the people we want to reach are not the Beltway insiders. They're not, you know, the political editor of The Spectator who I sit with in conference every week, who by day two was going, oh, fucking strong and stable. <laughs> oh, my God, she said it hundred times. But people whose exposure to Theresa May's speeches is going to be walking past a radio on the street. Yeah. And they just thought, if we can kind of saturation bomb the world with strong and stable, you know, voters who aren't watching Newsnight every night will get that kind of subliminal message. And we know now, because unfortunately in this age we've learned to game, you know, all those biases that Kahneman and Tversky discovered, you know, about recency mm. and availability and mm. the idea that if you simply repeat something often enough, people are more likely to believe it, even if there's no foundation for that. Thank you, Donald Trump. Um, and so that was a brute force strategy, which mm. eventually collapsed because the force of ridicule just Yeah, people did it. actually just start laughing at her when she says it. But the other problem was they didn't have an Alistair Campbell. They've got two, I believe, well-regarded policy wonks in, um, oh, beardy weirdy, what's he called, Ruth Butin, Nick Timothy, and <laughs> Fiona, who's a bit flip, who are the two great advisors. But they don't have a sort of vicious tabloid newsman to say, we've got strong and stable, okay, what's the attack line on that? Mm. Is there anything that scans exactly the same and also alliterates that could see it off? Oh, weak and wobbly, oh shit, right, we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and people found weak and wobbly within about three days, yeah. and they found an occasion to use it, and that killed it. And that's, again, an Alistair Campbell would have said, right, we're gonna do this thing about 
you know, old age care, what are our enemies going to call it? Yeah. And then the moment the word phrase dementia tax came out, it killed it, just as it did. And that wasn't a political thing, that was entirely a rhetorical thing, in the same yeah. way that poll tax killed the community charge, that yeah. spare bedroom tax killed the spare bedroom tax, whatever it was originally called. <laughs> and in the same way that death panels, which yeah. was, you know, Mark Thompson death uses panels, in his yeah. book, you know, was a sort of weaponized phrase that completely destroyed a perfectly sensible provision for people to discuss end-of-life care with unwell people in Obama's ACA. And, you know, Sarah Palin just found the phrase death panels, and as Mark Thompson describes in his very good book, um, Enough Said, which is about the degeneration of the language of politics in the age of the internet, that was halfway around the world before the truth had got its boots on. And, you know, the damage a good phrase does is really considerable, and I think that's, you know, that's something rhetoric warns us. That is the power of rhetoric. Does anybody want to ask Sam about weaponized words, or does anybody have a rhetorical question? Yes, there are easy to answer. I love those. Okay, so there's one at the front, of course, Sylvia. Of the politicians in the ten or past 10 or so years, given that you think very little of the ones we have now, do you think any of them have really kind of mastered rhetoric or really commanded it? Well, Obama's kind of my guy. Um, I wrote this book basically because I, having been a bit of a rhetoric nerd at university, you know, watched him give that election night speech yeah. and was a bit like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, 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 I love you. Um, and then wrote... A big piece of the FT that contained lots of Latin and Greek, and um, then, to my utter astonishment and initial disbelief, the publisher said, you should write a book about this. And I was like, you must be mad. Nobody gives an on or whatever. Um, but, you know, the problem is that Obama's showy high style did count against him later on, so he wasn't perfect. You know, he made beautifully crafted speeches, but you know, he wasn't very good at changing gear in the way that you needed to be when you were facing this kind of incredibly obstructionist, you know, Tea Party movement. Um, and regrettably, I have to say that, though, if I were a school teacher marking Donald Trump's essays, I'd, there'd be a lot of red ink. Um, and yet, what he did worked rhetorically. And the main point to make is that rhetoric is an instrumental art. It's not what, you know, figuratively brilliant. It's not a literary art, it's what works. And unfortunately, the you know, Trump stuff on the Flesh Kincaid reading scale mm. was notoriously very low, but that worked. And actually, there's been quite interesting analysis from linguists saying that the way his sentences broke off and he didn't, you know, actually worked to engage an audience dialogically, more like a stand-up comic. He was like, you know, am I right? You know, you know we're talking about you know, and he could therefore <laughs> seed ideas. He could, you know, say something that was potentially hugely libelous while allowing the audience to fill in the gaps. And that, I mean, I wouldn't say it was clever because I don't think he's as deliberate a performer as that, but it was intuitively effective. And it hit the right moment and it found its ethos group. It found a large enough number of people who were like, you're one of us. And that's the identity speech aspect of it. So. I think uh, I found your book unexpectedly empowering because what it showed me is how rhetoric is used 
all the time and how when we start to understand it, we can start to fight against it. And um, it's just a pity. Fight against it with it, with I it. should say. Exactly, yes. fight against it with it, not fight against rhetoric in itself. So on that optimistic note, please join me in thanking Sam Lee. Thank you. I don't know if that's left you feeling strong and stable or weak and wobbly, but that was our coalition of chaos, or at least a coalition of me and Sam. Sam's book is You Talking to Me, Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama. You can find out more about Sam and our other authors on our website, literarysalon.co.uk.